continue with that posture of worship because there's not at the moment a particular clarity how it is that God wants to minister to us as his people. There's just a sense and and a growing expectation that that would be the case. And so I'm just going to ask you to simply just have that mind as we go into God's word. And I want to take the opportunity to dismiss Bridge 46. That's our ministry for those who are in fourth through sixth grade. Uh, You can be dismissed at this time if you're our guest and you're here. My name is Chris. Welcome. Thank you for being here. I would love to connect with you later. You can do so through Connect Card or online at metrolife.org slash connect. Uh, would love to be able to meet you after the service. I think the irony is that Vicki said she was going to trip us for a walk for life. I think that's a great way to, to introduce that subject matter. But would you turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1? Galatians chapter 1. We're starting a new series today on our new identity. Our new identity. And I'm thinking, kind of reflecting on last week as we celebrated Easter and we had the opportunity to gather Friday night for our Good Friday services and the reflection of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. And then on Sunday morning as we celebrate his resurrection, his his power, his declaration over death, that death is now dead. And what a wonderful time celebrating together. But in the midst of that, as we looked at John chapter 11 and we saw that Jesus ministers to Martha and to Mary exactly how they needed in that moment. He answers Martha's intellectual query. He meets Mary's emotional need. You know, that message remains for us today, even as we move into the book of Galatians. There are some who are gathered here today who have this intellectual question about our identity in Christ. You're wondering, what, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? What does it mean to, is there something that I need to add to that? Is there something that I need to modify that word with? And the answer in Galatians is no. There's nothing that you add or subtract to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and perhaps you're here today and you say, I need to have the sense of the love of the Father. There's this emotional need, and and whether it's the intellectual or emotional, I think we all have this need in us inherently that we need to have a sense that we are loved. Many of us have learned how not to admit that out loud. Maybe it's been trained out of you to say that you you need to feel like you're loved. You need to feel like somebody loves you. And Galatians answers that as well. So as we begin today in our new series on the book of Galatians. What we're starting with today is seeing in Galatians 1 through 10, our gracious new identity. That we can't earn God's favor. That the good news of the gospel is free for each one of us here today. And it releases us into our new identity. Now, as we approach this book before we read in Galatians chapter 1, I think it's important for us to recognize that Galatians plays a key role in the church. It plays a key role in the life of the church and in the history of the church. It was a book that was called the cornerstone of the Reformation. Its emphasis is on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. That's a major theme in the five solas, the reformers. And and we're entering into this city of Galatia where there's this mountainous territory. Modern day it would be known as Turkey. We're entering into this area and, and there's not a lot of information on the churches that Paul has planted there. There's not a lot of information on the things that they face there. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 15 as they're going to this council, and there's, there's this debate that's happening there. But there's a problem that, that the church is facing, and that's what 
Paul is writing. The problem is that he had preached this salvation through faith alone. And there are these Judaizers who are coming in, visiting the churches, and saying, yes, we believe that, but you also have to do this. Let me tell you this. When anybody says grace and, it's a false gospel. Let's just start there. That's, that's kind of where Paul starts. He doesn't do a lot of the niceties of the letters of the day. He dives right into it. See, he had preached this gospel of salvation by faith alone to these Galatians. They, were, they didn't have a background in Judaism. They didn't have any background in all of these things of, of religious trappings. What they had was a relationship with Jesus. And at some point, it felt like it wasn't enough. And somebody else came in and said, oh, well, you need this too. And they began to believe that. And in their enthusiasm, as though who were young in the faith, they began to believe what these Judaizers were preaching. They were told to add circumcision and the law to their faith in Jesus Christ. So anytime that we see the word and, we should be cautious. We should be cautious. And I want to be cautious today even in preaching this. Today, I want us to encounter the relationship that we're called to with the living God. I want us to see how it is that it changes our identity from the very core of who we are. That it, it touches that point in our life where we experience the love of God as our Father in a way that just completely changes our outlook on the world. Completely changes the way that we see what it is that we're called to. No matter our vocation, no matter our day, no matter our home life or the situation that we find ourselves in. Because there's a greater identity that has come through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's heart is. Now, there's a basic outline to this book. It's short but sweet. It talks about the gospel of grace defended in the first couple of chapters. In a couple of weeks, Shane is going to bring a sermon, and then just after that, Seth will be preaching as well. After that, we're going to get into the gospel of grace explained in chapters 3 and 4, and then the gospel of grace applied to our lives. So what difference does this begin to make? But the main idea of this book is that Christian freedom is the liberty to become all that you can be in Jesus Christ. But it is not licensed to do whatever it is that you please. Christian liberty is the freedom to become all that you can in Jesus Christ, not the license to do whatever you please. And it's important that we get that right as we begin to read. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Father, we pray today that your word would come to life in our lives, that we would see afresh the good news of the gospel, something that so many of us have heard for so long and some may hear today for the first time. Lord, may it be for all of us as we walk out of the doors at the close as if we've heard this for the first time and may it invigorate our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, letters in the first century, no matter the language that was spoke, really tended to include these three parts that we see Paul kind of breeze through. There was the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and there was a greeting. Paul gets right into it. This is actually one of his shortest introductions throughout the New Testament. Oftentimes we see him speak in all of these flowery prose, but this time he gets right to it and he says, Paul, an apostle. Now let's be clear here. There's no question who penned this letter. We don't have to have some debate over the, the source of this material. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but this is coming to the churches that Paul himself has planted in Galatia, and it's coming from the one who founded these churches. And he's saying that you've moved from the foundation that we set in place. And he, and he identifies himself as an apostle. Now, this is certainly an affirmation of his identity, and he's clinging to this in, in a different way in this particular passage. Why is that? Now, it's certainly not because he needed to prove his authority. It's actually because there were people who were saying, you know, Paul kind of gave himself that title. We're not really sure what that means. And so they were kind of undermining his authority. And Paul clings to something. This was given to me by God. Now, let's just pause there. If your new identity is given to you by God himself, why is it that it's so easy for me and for you to abandon it in a moment of weakness? Why is it so easy to do that? See, Paul's actually setting an example. It has nothing to do with roles in the church. It has nothing to do with spiritual gifts, although I think it does have something to do with spiritual gifts. What he's saying is, this identity has been given to me by God himself. Let's not abandon that. Church. Your identity in Christ is not just for this hour and a half that we're gathered together. Your identity in Christ is not just for the moments that we gather together in community groups and youth meetings and men's and women's ministry meetings. Your identity in Christ is not just in place for the moments that you face trial or triumph. Your identity in Christ is everything. Your identity in Christ is everything. That's the example that Paul is setting here for us. Don't abandon your new identity if you're in Christ. Don't live against the new nature that you've been given by trying to earn that nature for yourself. Receive it as a free gift of grace and let it become everything to you. Now, I'll stand here today and tell you that I'm a Christian. I hope that's not shocking to you. I hope that's, more importantly, not shocking to my family. But I'm a Christian who hasn't figured it all out. Is it okay to admit that out loud? I'm a Christian who at times will struggle with my old nature. When I act contrary to the things that I even know or preach, I'm not talking about anything over the top, or I'm not confessing something here that's not just part of normal life. If you're new to this church, I'm going to be real with you. I don't have it all together. 
I don't preach in this moment from some stand that's looking down at you. Actually, I miss being closer to y'all. Last week, that was nice. We're going to have to get back to that. I miss being closer to you. I don't stand here in some demeaning way as if my life has it all together and I don't struggle with these in moments in my own life. I need the grace of God just like you do. I need to wrestle through these things just like you do. I need to preach the good news of the gospel to myself just like you do. And so today, as we're talking about these things, I'm saying them to you as a fellow follower of Christ. Let's not abandon this new identity. Let's not abandon the things that God has called us to. In verses 3 through 5, we see a bit of a picture of the gospel in in the nutshell. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. They're not just words that are transitional. He's not just putting it there because it's like, you know, I should say something nice before I'm like, what are you doing? No, he's actually reminding them of the source of something. Grace, God's undeserved kind intentions toward you and toward me grace to you. And what is peace? Peace is the fruit of grace received. Grace to you, peace to you. He's calming their minds from feeling like the gospel of grace is not enough for them. He's telling them, let your mind be at peace. Christ is enough. Grace to you, And peace. From whom? From God our Father. You'll notice that three times in these opening verses, God is referenced as Father. I don't think that's insignificant. We're going to come back around that in just a moment. But we need to recognize that grace is God's undeserved kind intention. It's carried out on behalf of sinful human beings. And and peace is the result of the grace that we have received. And He gave Himself. What did he give himself for? He gave himself for our sin. This is where we begin to get to this difficult place in our understanding of the gospel. He gave himself for our sins in the past. He gave himself for the sins that we might be wrestling with right now. And he gave himself for the sins that we may commit in the future. That is, honestly, church, beyond my ability to comprehend because it's not like I'm sitting here going, I'd like to sin in this way in the future. And yet at the same time in those moments, I need to recognize the grace of God is still enough. I haven't squandered it in some way. Spurgeon reminds us that in giving himself for our sins, that it's not for our virtues, but for our sins that Christ gave himself. It's not for our efficiencies, but for our deficiencies. It's not for our wealth, but for our lack. It's not for what we have. It's for what we do not have. That's what Christ gives himself for. It's not that we can boast of. It's the things that we should mourn over. That's what Christ gave himself for. That's what qualifies us to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel begins and ends with God. It begins with him as the source of our creation, the source of our identity, the source of our salvation. What do we bring? Our need. And what does he do? He gives us a glorious hope and a future. There's a lot of steps along the way. There's a lot of ways that we can fill it in. There's a lot of ways that we can say the process. There's the ways that we can talk about the chain of salvation. There's the ways that we can talk about sanctification. But what we're talking about right now is don't add anything to the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We're focused in on this part because it's important that we get this part right. If we don't get this part right, we begin to think that we can deliver ourselves. It's important for us to see throughout Scripture in Matthew 6, 13, we are delivered from evil because we would give ourselves over to that. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tell us to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. It is Jesus who delivers us from what? From the wrath that is to come. We have been delivered from wrath. 2 Corinthians 1.10 says that he delivered us from such a deadly peril. Look at that. That's in the past. He delivers us presently and on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again in the future. This is what scripture testifies to and our passage today says that he delivers us from this present evil age. How might we define this present evil age, you might ask? Well, how about this? It's the lie that tells you, live for yourself. It's the moment that whispers in your ear, get yours. It's the moment that tells you, This is all you have to live for. Take it. These are the lies that are underneath this present evil age. No doubt. Live for yourself. How often do we give in to that? There's no doubt, church, that the worst bondage that we can face in this life is living for yourself. For the believer to live outside of this new nature that we're given, this new identity that we've been giving, yielding to the desires of our old nature is a bondage that we, by the grace of God, must see that he has freed us from. How about this? How how about an identity test for everybody this morning? This is not a 23andMe. It's an identity test. Let me ask you a few questions to kind of help us think about our identity. What do we do when we've made a mess of things? When you've blown it badly, where do you go? Do you, you notice that I'm, I'm assuming we struggle? I, I'm presuming that in the church it's okay to say that we don't have our act all together. I'm making an assumption that there's not a particular way that this looks, but we all kind of begin to see the struggle that we face in the same way and how we need a truth greater than those moments, don't we? What do you do when you've blown it? Where where do you go when you've blown it, when you've made a mess of things? To what do you turn when you've embittered your child with harsh words? Maybe when you've betrayed your spouse with maybe even just sheer stupidity. What about those moments when you've alienated a colleague or a classmate with putting choices of yourself before anything else? What about those moments where you've driven a wedge between friends or or sown discord amongst congregants? Where do you go when you've been insensitive, thoughtless, downright obnoxious? Or is this just me this morning? I'll take the awkward laughter as you're with me. How do you respond when your faith isn't strong? When it feels like it's not enough. 
Maybe you've compromised the gospel. Maybe you've even turned from God's ways. How do you respond in those moments? What attitudes or vices or sin do you seek out to bring comfort to your hurting soul? See, typically, when we sin, we like to hide. Adam taught us that. We like to hide. Maybe we want to hide our sin. Maybe we want to hide ourselves. Maybe we want to do both. But Paul here is saying, you've made a mess of things, but all is not lost. Go back to the place where you began. Go back to the place where you started. Go back to grace. There you're going to find everything that you need. You're going to find everything that you need there. The only thing that you need, you need to experience grace again. And he does this in an interesting way. He, he calls them deserters. He says that they are turning away. It's almost this military term where he's saying, you are a defector of the faith. Spiritual turncoat. You know, in, in looking at this, we actually learn something about the gospel and its importance in the church. It's, it's something that's been entrusted to us. It's something that is a, a treasure that we are to value as a church. It's, it's the message of greatest importance for us to make sure that we are seeking to get right. There are so many facets to this, but we learn that when you turn from the gospel, you turn from God himself. We may not think about it in those moments when we've blown it, do we? When you're in that moment and you just think, you know, let me, let me further turn from God himself. I don't think that any of us would ever say that out loud. And yet how often is that the way that we respond? When you turn from the gospel, you turn from God himself. When you turn from the gospel, you turn from the grace of Christ. We see this in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one. There is no hybrid gospel. There is only Christ. Don't distort it. Don't let other voices trouble you. Because when you turn from the gospel, you have nowhere else to go. You have nowhere else to go. See, God's glory is at stake in the midst of this. People's souls are at stake in the midst of this. The health of the church is at stake in the midst of this. If we abandon a God-centered message of salvation for a human-centered one, we are abandoning and turning away from God himself. How quickly we try to begin earning brownie points with God to get back in his good graces, don't we? How quickly we see that language as a part of our relationships with our fellow man and we begin to try to apply that to our relationship with God himself. And Paul is saying, no! That relationship has been restored. Blood-bought through Jesus Christ. It is secured through his resurrection. And we can live in the good of that today. To abandon the gift of grace is to desert the giver of that grace. It may sound harsh. That's not my intention this morning. Paul's response is even to say, I can't believe it. I'm shocked. I, I marvel at this, that you so quickly go against these things because Paul himself treasured this gospel. We see this good news in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, later on in the chapter in verse 11. But some of us find ourselves in a, a situation similar to the Galatians oftentimes where we embrace the gospel with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm at first. How can it be that such a Savior would die for me? 
And it leads to this enthusiasm for the truths of God. It leads to this wonderful picture of what God has done for us. But then as we begin to live out this Christian life, we find out, you know, this isn't, <clears throat> this may not look like what I expected. There's got to be something more. This is a little different than buyer's remorse, isn't it? It's one of those things where you just go, it's, it's not that it, I, I'm regretful of that. I just don't know that it's enough. Like, have you seen my life? Have you met my family? Have you seen my finances? I don't know that the grace of God is enough for those things. Have you encountered the hurt or pain or the diagnosis that I'm walking through? Is the gospel enough? It doesn't feel like enough. And so we begin to wrestle. You know, the sad truth is that we don't have a singular gospel in the world today. There's, there's probably more than 50 of them, aren't there? They're everywhere. The me gospel, the money gospel, the gospel of do, the gospel of anything goes, the gospel that says, well, salvation is a process, and someday you may earn it. The pick, your up, pick yourself up by your bootstraps gospel. But note that none of Paul's letters start with what it is that we need to do for God. None of Paul's letters look at the gospel in this way. He always begins with what God has already done. It's what we were singing about in worship. Are there battles that we fight in life? To be sure. But we all know where the story ends. It's a gracious truth. It's a wonderful truth to be able to rejoice in. And it's truth enough for your every day that you can cling to this new identity in Christ. See, to get this the other way around is to miss the gospel. Think about the book of Colossians. It opens with four, it has four chapters in it total. Verses, uh, excuse me, chapters one and two describe this remarkable things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then it calls us to live out of the good of that. Ephesians in the first three chapters. This is what Christ has done for you. Chapter four, therefore walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Notice that the gospel always focuses on Jesus' performance for us, not our performance for him. On what he's done, not what we can do. And if we begin to understand this, I think that it's true that we will become less and less enslaved to our sin. Sin remains, but it no longer reigns is the way that we will articulate this. Those temptations may remain, but it has no longer has any ruling over you as we begin to understand the one who does now rule over us and the work that he has done on our behalf. We will be freed from what remains. We identify the gospel as Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. What he did is the good news of the gospel. Our response is to stand in awe of this, to be those who adore him because of this, who have hearts that are grateful and open to him, and a desire to live out what it looks like for us to receive the grace of God, a life that pleases our Lord. I mentioned Acts chapter 15. Verse 1 is where it talks about what the Judaizers were adding to the gospel. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is not a raging debate in the church today. I'm grateful for that. But what are the things that we might be tempted to add to the gospel? I mean, if we think about it, if we pause for just a moment, I think we should admit something. Sometimes adding something to the gospel even seems right. Certainly religious. 
maybe even reasonable. Think about it. If I were to take this water and I were to just take one drop of poison and just drop it in there, and then I said, oh, well, you know, let me swirl it around because you don't want to just be floating there on the top. Let me just get that down in there real good. Okay, now, now I'm just going to drink this. None of y'all tried to stop me. <laughs> Judaizers. No, I'm just joking. Yes, I needed a drink, and it worked perfectly with that illustration. Praise God for his timing. Close enough to the gospel is not the gospel. Close enough to grace is no longer grace. It's works. Close enough to free still costs you something. That's why I don't play on game shows. I don't need that car and the taxes that come with it. How often in life do we add something behind the scenes in those quiet moments where it seems right? Paul opposes adding any human work to the work that Christ has accomplished because if you tamper with the gospel, if you add anything to grace, you lose everything of the good news of the gospel. Do we forget that at times? Do we forget that adding anything to grace makes it something other than grace? And we have to, have to face a question that is going to confront us. It, why is it that we choose legalism? Why, why is it that we choose something other than grace? Well, perhaps it's this way. Legalism seems more appealing in the moment, doesn't it? Faith in Jesus Christ requires us to repent and be humbled. If religion can be reduced to regulation, then, then I can feel good about my accomplishments. Christ did it all? Well, that, that, that hurts my ego. Legalism can be more appealing, can't it? It can, it can feel more natural. Most of our human experiences say that you get what you work for. Nothing in this world is free. I don't preach the message of the world. The church is not a place for the message of the world. So it may feel more natural, but this message is supernatural. The grace of God is free. Legalism may seem more manageable. Life feels a little out of control. You know, maybe if I just had these well-defined duties, if I just knew, like, the first thing I should do when I get out of bed every morning, the, the last thing I should do every night before I go to bed, and then everything in between, why don't you just schedule everything? feels more manageable that way. Maybe legalism feels safer for some. You know, freedom's pretty dangerous. Freedom's pretty dangerous. I mean... Jesus gave his life. Are we going to trust that to the Holy Spirit working in people's conscience? That, that's, that's dangerous. Legalism, that, that's safer. Certainly the safer thing. And, and let's be honest. 
This is where legalists get something right. We need constraint and controls on our lives. You may think, oh, now you've gone off the rails. Now you're saying something totally opposite of everything you've said up to this point. No, listen, we need constraint and controls in our lives. Here's what they get right. We need restriction. We need restraint. What legalists get wrong is the source of that restraint. See, they put it first. Do this. Earn that. Outward restrictions. Those are ineffective in creating some kind of moral living. Look at the law of the land in the land of the free. Does that make us more moral in our living? No. What we need are inward convictions, empowering us to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. I could ask it this way as a bit of a diagnostic. Are you a Judaizer this morning? And you may think, well, I don't think so. Well, how about, how about we think through these questions? Do you look for anything other than repentance and belief in someone to evaluate their salvation? Repentance and belief. Perhaps this shows up in your home where others in the church can't see it. You're, you're quietly holding someone to your own standards of assurance for them. Ah, oh, you know, I see them every Sunday, but I don't know. Do you, do you quietly question anyone's external destiny, or excuse me, eternal destiny, if you see something that seems out of place by your standards. I don't know that I would do that. Maybe this shows up in community group or serving teams that you're a part of, Hid, where, where you're glad that these people are in group with you so that they can learn from you what it looks like to live for the glory of God. Maybe if they see my relationship with God, then they'll understand that my actions are what has earned that for me. I'm glad that they're here to see this. Oh, see how, see how it seeps into the church? They were distorting the gospel by reversing the gospel. What do I mean by reversing the gospel? There, there is a particular order to the gospel message. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from work so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Notice that we are first saved by grace alone, then for good works, not the other way around. See, to revise the gospel is to reverse the gospel. The biblical gospel of grace is a precious thing. To say that we receive grace after we have worked for salvation would be the reversal of the gospel. If a person says, I'm going to do enough good to be right with God, and then I'll merit His grace and be saved, well, then they've reversed the gospel. What, what is to be in the back has come to the front. And false teachers distort the message of hope. False teachers confuse and divide because of this. But here's the truth. Any legalistic, any works-based system is a hopeless system because it puts you at the center of it. And it's not just that I don't want to put my eternal destiny on you. Here's the truth of it. I don't want to put my eternal destiny on me. I want to put it on his work is perfect. His work is enough. 
We're not just supposed to be moral in the eyes of God. We have to be perfectly righteous, and only Christ was that. We can and will never be enough. And I say that today that it might cause peace in your hearts. You are not enough. Praise God. Christ is. I am not enough. Praise God. Christ is. We cannot earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn his favor. And this is an aspect of the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is free to you that you cannot earn his favor. And it releases us into our new identity in Jesus Christ. You know, verse 10 reminds us who we live for. We live for God the Father. Now, if we connect that to last week again, thinking about Martha's intellectual need, Mary's emotional need, that that Christ reveals himself in the midst of uh, resurrecting Lazarus, that he is the resurrection and the life. He's the one who empowers us. But they point to our deep need of God as our Father, don't they? I've been affected by this this week in study. God is not a type of Father. Make sure you understand what I mean by that. There are are ways that Scripture reveals who God is, and it uses metaphors, and it uses things in nature, and it uses pictures to describe His character. This is not a metaphor. God is the Father. He's not a type of Father. He's not like the embodiment of perfect dad. He's not TV dad like some of the commercials try to have on right now. He's the Father. All other dads are a type. See, Father is his very character and his very nature toward us. And he loves you. See, I know in this world when we can have this picture like we've cut out all the perfect parts of dads and we've tried to assemble it in our own mind. We try to overcome the experiences that we have by saying, look at that, there there must be something like a good dad. And what we're looking at is all of these types that fall beneath the one who actually is the perfect father. We look at all these types because we're trying to wrestle with this sense of we need to experience the love of a father. It's part of how we were created. All earthly fathers in every way pale in comparison to God as your father. So let's make sure our understanding is that Christ, his work, because of the paradox of three in one, because of the the God who is Father, Spirit, Son, Christ's work is the work of the Father. Christ's work is the work of the Father, calling us and drawing us into his presence that we can experience his love. We can experience his love in a way that nothing in the world will ever be able to do because it's a love that does not go away. It's a love that doesn't wane from one part of the day to another. It's not one that feels distant or alone. Christ says, I'm with you always. He sends the Holy Spirit as a helper. The Holy Spirit reveals how it is that God loves us. The Holy Spirit empowers those convictions that we can live out of. Oh, God is our Father. 
is a truth that may be difficult to wrap our minds around, but church, go on the journey for the glory of God our Father. Begin to understand Him in this way. Experience His love in ways that nothing on the world can compare to. Understand how it is that God as our Father creates and secures and empowers the identity that we now have in Jesus Christ. See how it is that the Father loves you and experience it afresh. So how do we respond to this? Even if there's just a glimpse that we're beginning to get today, how do we respond to this? Well, adore Him. See that as something that the grace that he has given is shown to us through the death that he has endured for you. And it's empowered by the resurrection and life. And adore him for that. He is worthy of our adoration. But the other way that we can respond to this this morning is to do this. Wrestle with these things in your own heart and mind. Get the order right. Get the message right. And do so with courage and the power that the Holy Spirit provides. And see what God will do with your new identity every moment of every day. Church, can we stand together?